You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. This is Sacred Attention, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, before we get started, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and I truly could not do this without them. So for this week, I have to thank Julia, Megan, Tim, and Adrian. Thank you so much. Every little bit helps. And for anyone wondering where this money goes, it actually goes to like very practical life stuff like repairing my car and feeding my six cats and the the pipes in my front yard exploded over the weekend and it goes to repairing things like that. So every little bit helps. And for anyone listening who wants to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month. You get extra content every single week and early access to the occasional episode of Sacred Tension. And this show is also sponsored by the Satanic TV. The Satanic Temple has an incredibly creative community, and there's all kinds of stuff happening over at TST TV. If you're interested in the occult, in talk shows, weird puppet shows, and cooking shows, then please go to the Satanic TV and you can use my promo code SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout. And finally, one of the best ways to support this show is to leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. I will read your review, even if it's nasty, on the show. So please leave a five-star review. You can also now leave five stars on Spotify as well. All of that helps. It tells our digital overlords that this show is worth sharing with others. Well, with all of that out of the way, Matthew Kazaya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Spot on. Okay, good. <laughs> tell us tell us some about who you are and what you do. So I serve as general counsel for TST, the Sang Temple. Um, I'm pretty much the guy that runs all of the litigation efforts that TST does. Um, most recently, we are in the news for the, um, the reproductive religious rights uh, campaign. Uh, which involves a couple of lawsuits against Texas. I say a couple. We just filed the second one. Hmm. I think it was last week, maybe the week before that. It's actually getting served today. So oh, uh, very yeah. timely on that on that front. Anyone who knows anything about TST, it's you know all kinds of stuff. We're having SatanCon here. Uh, the filming of this is on uh, February 8th. So uh, here in a few days for me, might be over by the time people listen to it, uh, which was the subject of a different lawsuit. A couple weeks back, we filed a big Bell Plain brief on the Bell Plain matter. Uh, just lots of things going on pretty much all times. All the time. Did you just say that there is a lawsuit regarding SatanCon? No, no, no. SatanCon is in Scottsdale. Scottsdale was right, where where one of the lawsuits took place over the invocation. Is that correct? Right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we I, are Go ahead. Well, no, I was I was just going to say so it's like we are in like two different 
arms of TST. So I serve on ordination council in satanic ministry. So, you know, like I am in the religious life clergy side of the temple and I never think, I almost never think about the legal stuff. <laughs> like my my whole world is the satanic ministry. And so that's what I'm like doing every single day. So whereas you are like on the other end of the temple doing all the legal stuff. So it's great to talk to you. And what is going, so there is so much talk about the reproductive rights battles going on in Texas and with TST. Just give us an update. What is going on? So the update, I, I feel like I should start with the predicate so that the update makes sense, but I'll start with the update. Um, the update is, again, there are two lawsuits. There's the federal lawsuit and the state lawsuit. Um, I want to say maybe a month or so ago, the federal lawsuit got stayed because um, if you know what's going on with the Supreme Court. They're mm -hmm. basically trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's basically something that the federal judge picked up on and said, well, you know, your part of the lawsuit entails, it's called Casey. That's the that's actually the case that matters. That's how you look at abortion regulations, at least as of right now. Um, so we have a Casey claim in this lawsuit, basically saying that these abortion regulations are um, an undue burden uh, in the language of the law. And since it's resting essentially on Roe v. Wade and Roe v. Wade is looking like it's about to go away, the judge said, well, we're just going to stay all this. Let's figure out what happens with uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey, and then we'll we'll go from there. So we had everything all briefed up. It had been briefed up since um, about August or so of last year is when we had our oral, uh, oral argument and call it I don't know, January or December or so, it just got vacated. We're just going to start all over here pretty soon. So that's the big update on the federal side of things. One of the outcomes of this motion to dismiss was that a state claim could only be, it turned out a state claim could only be heard in state court. So part of the lawsuit got ejected from the federal lawsuit, and we just refiled that um, a, couple, a couple weeks ago or so, within the past couple of weeks. And so that one is a little bit more on, and this gets into the weeds a little bit. So uh, the kind of the predicate for all of these two lawsuits is that TST has an abortion ritual. Everyone else has abortions and it's just a secular medical concern, but there are special rights that kick in when something is religiously motivated. Uh, so that's the impetus of TST's claim. The federal lawsuit attacks it from the federal constitution perspective. The state lawsuit attacks it from a, it's called the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Very high level in 1990, a federal case came out that said, so far as the federal constitution is concerned, if a neutral and generally applicable law happens to infringe upon your religious beliefs or practices, it's still kosher. You have to show that it was intended to target that particular belief. Otherwise, it's, it doesn't matter that it's religiously motivated. Well, that triggered a backlash from about two thirds of the states and the federal government that said, that's not what the law should be. The law should be if there's even a, a general neutrally, a neutral and generally applicable law, even if that's the case, the fact that it's infringing on religiously motivated conduct, that's not okay. And the government should have a very high burden to prove that that's the least restrictive way that it can go about pursuing whatever that, it's called the compelling interest, the, the highest order 
interest of uh, of government. So that's the state law claim. And so, you know, this all of this Texas business came out before SBA. So part of the new Texas lawsuit is taking issue with SBA and saying this runs afoul of our Texas RIFRA rights. Uh, it actually, in our opinion, runs afoul of the Texas Constitution because they just amended their constitution to basically incorporate RIFRA reasoning. Um, and then the interesting, most interesting part legally to me is there's a part of SB8 that says liability does not attach for um, conduct that is protected by the First Amendment. So we're asserting that this is conduct, it's expressive conduct, minimally, it's particularly religious expressive conduct. So we shouldn't even need to get to the, the constitutionality of SB8. It just falls into this safe harbor that this ritual is not uh, a predicate for liability. So all of this to say that our members should be able to get their abortions as an exemption to Texas's generally applicable regulations. As a general proposition, there are some that, you know, we're not taking issue with. Do you think that the people who set all of this up, the the religious freedom exemptions and whatnot, had any idea that it would apply to anyone other than Christians? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So for the most part, religious freedom case law is developed from non well, I'll just say it. They're, they're usually developed by minority religions. Mm -hmm. um, in 1992, which was about three, four years before the uh, federal RIFRA Act, and there's some background there. It initially started out that it was just a federal act, and it was supposed to apply to both the federal government and all the states. But then in, I want to say, 98 or 2000, uh, the part that says this applies to the states as well got invalidated because it's a, it's a federalism issue. And so as a result of that, about two thirds of states have passed their own analogs of RIFRA. And they're all, you know, the Texas Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Arkansas Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Some of them have different names as well, but they usually just follow the same language as the federal act. Um, all this to say, though, that just four years before this act came out, the Harry Krishnas were, they had to go to the Supreme Court, the US Supreme Court, because um, there were a bunch of regulations that said they can't. Uh, hand out their literature, except in like they can't go behind the security area where everyone's getting on the plane. They were relegated to the front. And there were some other things that were designed, frankly, purposely to limit their proselytizing. And that's not kosher. Uh, Harry Krishnas were not a popular group. They were a minority group. So, I mean, it was anyone who's paying attention in Congress is they they know what's going on. They're they're briefed by it. There's people that care about this stuff. I'm frankly one of them. So yeah, they they know that these kinds of rights are going to apply equally to Christians as well as minority religions. And um, it's I'm not sure I'd go that far. Okay. Uh, okay. And in contemporary society, meaning like nowadays, uh, mm. I don't think so. I think nowadays when you hear religious freedom, you're mostly hearing from Catholics. Um, I want to say, what was it, two, within the past couple of years, actually about a year and a half ago, um, a really big case came out uh, called Espinoza, and I forget the rest of it, but basically there, Montana had a law that said um, these state funds can only go to secular schools. We're, pa we're passing out money, and it can only go to secular schools. It cannot go to religious schools. And this Espinoza case totally 
overhauled that and said, no, it's a free exercise problem. You can't, you can't bar this Catholic school because they're Catholic from participating in this. Um, shortly after that, there was another big case called Fulton. Actually, this was, this was right before our response brief in the Texas case. It just came out like June-ish of last year. Their same kind of thing. That kind of upended a little bit that whole notion of, uh, remember we talked about uh, neutral and generally applicable laws. This kind of blew that up and said, look, if you have the discretion, if the government reserves the right to accommodate or not accommodate, it must accommodate. Otherwise, it's not really neutral because mm-hmm. they can accommodate. They just chose not to in your particular case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the Catholics um, wanting to discriminate against uh, same-sex couples, mm-hmm. but they still wanted money from the state. So um, that's that's what happened there. Yeah. Super interesting. So there's a lot of skepticism about the abortion ritual. And for everyone interested, everyone should go back into the archive and listen to my interview with Jane Essex uh, when the abortion ritual was first launched, when it was first announced. I think that was in 2020. Is that right? 2020? I'd say August of 2020 sounds right. August yeah. or September. Yeah, that sounds right. So everyone can go back and listen to that episode. It gives a lot of the details, but a lot of people on Twitter and there there is a lot of skepticism, some skepticism about the abortion ritual. And so I collected questions from my Discord server. And I think this question is really interesting and it kind of explores an angle on the abortion ritual. So it's the first one here. Some critics have claimed that the legal basis for TST's abortion ritual is faulty, that because it was not explicitly approved by any courts, and that because it merely falls after the fact into the guidelines set out, it is not truly an exemption to abortion bans or other laws dictating how abortion is handled on the state level. Can you articulate the legality of the abortion ritual? I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble with in the, the 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 background to the question followed by the question. Taking the question as as stated, can you articulate the legality of the abortion ritual? Yeah, the the free exercise clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees that people are allowed to exercise their religion as they see fit. Mm. And religion is a pretty broad term. TST counts as a religion in this context. Uh, That's actually the big one that we got out of Scottsdale is that we got that judicial stamp of approval. We are a bona fide religion entitled to First Amendment religious rights. And no one can ever take that away from us at this point. But the background to the question... I might be able to to clarify some. Okay. At least this is how I read it. I... Because people have actually articulated this to me in in various ways. And so this may or may not be what this particular person meant to ask, but this is how I will interpret it. There is, I think that there is something that might rub people the wrong way because it feels to them, to some people, like the abortion ritual is contrived merely for the sake of granting exemption as a loophole, not as a sincere religious expression. And so take, for example, ayahuasca ceremonies or peyote ceremonies for Native, for Native Americans, where it's like the, that is a sincere religious practice 
that has involved ritual for decades, if not centuries. And so it makes sense to people that that would, that that is a legitimate religious exercise. I, I think, and this isn't my view, by the way, but I think some people have a hard time not seeing the abortion ritual as almost like a gimmick that the satanic temple is using to exploit a loophole and that it is not, in fact, a sincerely held religious ritual. That is my view, but I think that is the view of a lot of people online. Sure. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, that. That actually helps elucidate quite a bit. So I kind of break this down then into two questions. Question number one is, is it a sincerely held religious practice? Um, is it religious within the meaning of these religious exemption rights? The suggestion is that, well, since it's new or since it's being deployed for the purpose of, um, seemingly at least, for the purpose of seeking an exemption to these religious portions, that makes it not sincerely held. So I'll, I'll address that question first. So the, the thing is, part of these religious rights cases necessarily entail is this practice, is this belief religious in nature? And it's basically a two-part test. Question number one is, is it sincerely held? Because uh, this is where the Pasifarians went wrong. Um, they roll around in their pirate outfits with colanders on their head and whatnot. They are very clearly mocking religion. Yes. Um, that's an argument that I have to deal with fairly regularly in, and, in my line of work. And pause. I am so sick of being compared to Pasifarians. Just to, yeah. to everyone listening, I the the comparisons to Pastafarianism, I I get it on an initial kind of surface level, but there is literally nothing ironic about my Satanism. My Satanism goes to my very bone marrow. Like there is there is nothing ironic or humorous about it. It is one hundred percent deadly serious not that doesn't mean that it can't have a sense of humor but there's zero irony there so i am so sick of the pastafarian comparisons anyway i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i just that's, had to interject <laughs> it no, kills me it absolutely fucking kills me and frankly i completely agree that that reaction right there though just demonstrates that's what makes tst sincerely held exactly you know if this is something that you don't give a shit about First of all, why are you in core? But second of all, mm -hmm. like that, that, that just immediate sense of offense when you're, when you're, you know, uh, questioned on that nature, that is what sincerely held is really getting at. Mm. Uh, so that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is, is it religious? Um, and there's not a concise and clear statement of when is something religious um the best case that i've found is called malnack 2 um and i cited this in the scottsdale case and i think this is why we won the tst is a religion side of things it's very philosophical but i basically boil it down to a single question does this organization or belief or practice do for that plaintiff what Christianity or God or what have you does for Christians. Mm. Um, so this is where it matters that TST has removing the abortion ritual from the equation. We have destruction rituals. We have other rituals. We have ceremony. And in, in other words, yes. uh, we have 
to some extent, well, I'll, I'll just take it in descending order. We have symbolism. There's quite a bit of symbolism involved. We have congregation. That's a big part of things as well, although not necessary. Um, all of these things are, you know, indicative of it's a religion. Um, but the main thing is at, at the end of the day, TST's creed is something that answers those um, fundamental questions of life, man's place in the universe, et cetera. Um, that is really, it, it, it fills that same need that going to church does for a Christian or believing in God does for a Christian. That's what makes it religious. And as a so, former Christian, I can 100% vouch to that. I, I converted from Christianity to Satanism. I didn't deconvert from Christianity to atheism, or I didn't deconvert to Satanism. I converted from from one religion to another, and I can see the parallels between the two in very stark terms. I mean, the two are so very obviously religious to me because my own experience of both Christianity and Satanism are 100% religious. Yeah. So that's that's really the the crux of these two cases is you know is this belief sincerely held is or this practice rather is it sincerely held does it come from is it an expression of the tenets and that's a fact question you know we have a particular member who wanted to engage in this ceremony and these regulations that we're taking issue with were roadblocks to her ability to participate in that ceremony. I likened it to the judge. It's like taxing and regulating mass. You just, you know, if there was a licensing scheme before you're allowed to go participate in mass, there would be an uproar. But mm -hmm. the thing about the constitution is it doesn't, you don't count heads. We don't have the constitution for the majority belief structure. We have it for the minority belief structure. It's protection from tyranny of the uh, majority. That's, That's right. why we have these things. They're fundamental civil rights. That evocative sense of, well, this is a religious practice, then if this is a religious practice and at the stage we're at it is presumed to be a religious practice because the facts go our way, then what does that mean when you put roadblocks up in front of it? So that, I think, maybe a little bit better addresses it. And then the second part of the question that I'm kind of deriving from this is, do religions have to be old in order to be a bona fide religion? The answer is no. There is quite a bit of scholarship out there basically to the effect of new religions are a thing and they are no less legitimate and no less entitled to protections than old religions. Going back to a very significant case, Larson versus Valente, uh, Valentic, I think. It's a 1982 case that I cite probably in all of my cases. It talks about the basically history of the Assumption Clause and uh, that is the genius and part of our First Amendment that, I forget exactly how they put it, they're, they're far better uh, written than they are spoken, of course, but it's to the effect of, you know, there's no greater guarantee against tyranny that the majority must relegate treatment of itself to its treatment of the minority. Mm -hmm. You do to someone else, you got to hold yourself to that same hurdle there. So, you know, this is the kind of underlying legal framework that we work from to say this is for one it's legitimate not just not just because it's presumed to be legitimate at this stage because of a legal fiction but i talk to people before i go putting their name on a lawsuit as a lawyer you're supposed to but i you know really put them through the ringer and say okay you know who are you why are you wanting to do this is this legitimate you know are you 
just kind of out there to, you know, make a name for yourself or whatever, you know, and it's, I satisfy myself that it's sincere before we follow the lawsuit. So I think that gets to the first part of this question as well, which is how do you tell if someone who wants these religious exemptions is sincere in their religious conviction or just playing a role or something like that? And so what I'm hearing you say is that you put them through the ringer until you are satisfied that it is a sincerely held religious conviction. Yeah, well, I I don't think I'd be doing anyone any favors by just slapping their name on a complaint and then they get put through the ringer in a deposition. Absolutely. Usually these things involve a camera in your face, very hard questions being asked in rapid fire order from some attorney who's, you know, staring down his nose at you. And it's not a comfortable experience. And, you know, they need a taste of it before, you know, they got to dip their toe in the water, so to speak, before they get involved in that. You know, because prep only goes so far. Hmm. I can't, I can't make someone say something under pressure. They're, these depositions are designed to try to extract the truth, so to speak. It's not an interrogation, but it sure as hell feels like it. Right. So we, uh, you, you talked about how the Pastafarian comparison drives you crazy. Here's another question from Discord. Ask him what the most annoying question he gets about TST is. Hands down, honestly, the Pasifarian one doesn't annoy me as much as it does you, but that's because I typically am dealing with, you know, a neutral arbiter, like a judge sure. who I can say, yeah, here's the differences, judge. A, we're not running around in pirate costumes demanding that we have colanders on our head <laughs> as an equal, right? Here's, here's the philosophical background of TST. This is why, mm-hmm. this is where it comes from. I'm not inviting an inquiry into whether this is reasonable. What this is, is it's an explanation. I can give that philosophical framework. So that is actually relatively easy for me to deal with, unless I'm just acting or dealing with a bad actor, because that's a thing that there are sometimes bad actor judges out there. No, the the one that annoys me the most is outside the law practice, which is why Satan? I despise that question. Uh, why yeah. Satan? <laughs> what? How, so, how do you respond to that? Uh, I usually just kind of stumble through it, but I mean, the, the, they're usually what I'll say is, well, you know, there's, it, it comes from a literary satanic movement, you know, from what the late 1700s or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, Mari Shell, you may have heard of her because Frankenstein, well, you know, she was part of this movement of people who basically turned this literary character of Satan on its head and said, you know, basically maybe Satan wasn't so bad. And so that kind of started the impetus of now we have Satanism, which is, you know, fundamentally that is, the the icon that is the creed that is satanism it's the starting point so that's why it's satan mm-hmm. um so you know i have an answer i just hate giving it because you know the the premise of the question is that the speaker knows more about what's going on inside my head than i do as if i'm just exactly. like putting on this affect for their fucking entertainment or whatever Yep. No, I, I have the exact same experience. And I wrote an article several years ago titled Why Satan, in which I attempt to answer that question. But it there there's just like this deep, deep confusion about why would anyone 
attach themselves to such a stigmatized figure? Why would anyone attach themselves to like the icon of all evil in Western culture? And the answer that I usually give them is stop and think about what you just said. Doesn't that suggest that this is stigmatized and yet I do it anyway? Doesn't that suggest to you that this isn't a political ploy, that this isn't a troll, but it is in fact a sincere religious conversion that I experienced, that it is a sincere religious conviction that I'm willing to take hits for because it's what I believe and it's who I am. Doesn't that suggest to you just how serious it is? And that's, that tends to be that tends to be one of the things that I say, but I, but yeah, no, I I totally get that, and it it I feel like people have this deep confusion over whether we are primarily a religious organization or a political organization, and I think oh, yeah. a lot of people probably because they watched uh, Hail Satan by Penny Lane, which is a great movie, it is fantastic, but as one of my friends says. There isn't a thing about Satanism in it. It's, it is, there isn't a bit of Satanism in that movie. Uh, and I like Penny Lane, and I like the movie. I, I, think, I think it is in a good representation of the temple, but there's no Satanism in it. And I like Penny Lane. I had her on the show when the movie came out. So I think people see the movie and assume that we are first and foremost a political organization. But the problem is that being a political organization and doing political activism, you know, the number of times people have said to me, don't you think your political cause would be better served if it if you didn't have Satan in your name? And I'm like, there's a fundamental confusion here because you think that we are a political organization not a religion. And it's like getting the cart before the horse. It would be like saying, oh, you know, the Quakers, they aren't actually religious. Their Quakerism is just a cover for their social activism. It would be as weird and offensive as that. <laughs> you know? I I do. Yeah. It's well, it's spot on. Um, God, I can't remember which podcast I listened to, but someone had some Church of Satan member on there, and they were just talking about, you know, that's the main difference between COS and TST is the activism. It's doing things. And frankly, I understand that there's a philosophical gap there, but uh, I don't think that other people really grasp that from the outside because, you know, I mean, partly I think that the issue is TST doesn't really proselytize in, in the way that other religions do. You know, TST does things that broadcasts we exist. This is kind of what we believe, but it's not you're you're never going to be getting a knock on your door ask being asked if someone wants to talk about Satan that day. It's, a, we have better things to do and B, that's just not that's just antithetical to the belief structure. So that tends to cause like a marketing issue. Mm -hmm. People don't know who we are, what we believe and whatnot. Mm -hmm. and, Frankly, that's fine, but um, you know that's it, it does cause it does cause some difficulties for me in the the legal space. I can because imagine. judges carry those those biases, yeah, very yeah. much, and I have to counteract those. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, and and you know, writing about Satanism, it's probably the thing that I deal with the most, and just kind of being a 
satanic content creator on the internet the i i watch people have these like tiny existential crises on a regular basis where they they're like you seem really sincere but tst is a joke how do i put these things together and and i'm like does it occur to you that maybe it isn't <laughs> that maybe your assumptions were wrong. And there's this concept that Joseph Laycock talks about, which is uh, what he calls ignorant familiarity, where uh, and he talks about this in his book, um, Speak of the Devil. With, and, and ignorant familiarity is this phenomenon where people who know the least about something tend to think and act as if they know the most. And so there are all of these people who know literally nothing. The most they know about Satanism is what they watched in an in a, you know a music video on in, on MTV 20 years ago. That is the most that they know about any kind of thing relating to Satanism at all. And then they are they they have the authority to regale me with satanic knowledge <laughs> with with knowledge of the religion of satanism and it is 100% a thing and i encounter it all the time it must be exhausting it is it is but you know you don't become a satanist and you you don't become a public satanist and um not be forced to be willing to talk about it on a regular basis. So here's a question that's interesting. Uh, have you learned anything new from working on TST cases? Any obscure facets of law? Uh, well, really, I would consider all of the First Amendment to kind of fall under this under this notion. Before I was TST's lawyer, I was just a lawyer, and there's not a lot of First Amendment work out there. I you know, I would spot constitutional issues all the time in cases because there's just a lot of law out there. Um, but, you know, really getting involved in the TST work is there is there is a lot to talk about. Free speech, free exercise, um, equal protection, uh, hell, even some due process stuff I've had to come in. All of these are uh, lawyer jargon terms, sorry. Uh, free speech is the First Amendment right to free expression. It's the right to um, either express things that you want to express or not support expressions of things that you don't want to express. Uh, the right to whether to speak and if so, what to say. Hmm. Uh, and that that's an umbrella under which free expression can be found, but um, free exercise is a little bit more uh, precise. It's more about the freedom of conscience. It's your, your belief structure, uh, your viewpoint um, about basically religion things, uh, which importantly includes not just how you worship, but how you can be free from government requirements of worship. Uh, forced prayer, for example, is not just an exception clause concern, it's also a free exercise clause concern. Obviously, exception clause is what it is. I mean, there's there's just so much. I, I, I have so much knowledge that I can't even, I can't even try to answer that that makes um, sense obscure facets of law <laughs> and and obscure so, facets of law sounds like something that even if you did try to explain no one would understand like this is yeah. this is like very arcane hermetic knowledge of law <laughs> yeah I, I what i would say is this 
I, before TST, I didn't really have much of a federal practice. I was mostly state. Uh, and the, the divide between state and federal is usually you're going to have like two people. I say people to mean that incorpor- corporations can be included in the term person. Mm-hmm. Uh, two people from different states battling over something that's worth at least $75,000. That's your typical federal case. And the reason why is there's a statute that says federal courts can hear those kinds of cases. I didn't really have much in the way of IP work, uh, intellectual property, that's copyrights, things of that nature. But there was a lot of that with TST. There's a decent amount of that. Yeah, Yeah. there's, I mean, I'm GC. I write contracts. I, you know, look at IP issues and say, okay, well, I need to send this demand letter here. It's not all, it's not all suing governments. TST, like every other organization, has legal needs that I'm, I'm the guy. But Uh, All of this background to say, one thing that I was really surprised by is how federal judges are just as prone to making legal errors, factual errors, logical errors as Hmm. your state judges. Mm -hmm. They just usually have more resources to think about how are they going to screw you over to make your appeal harder. My state judges, they don't care. They just say, "Ah, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do. Judge, you can't do that. It's against the law. I don't care. Appeal me. Okay, <laughs> you know, uh, hmm. federal judges, not so much. They just like disregard inconvenient facts. They just say, oh, well, that's not what the law is. The law requires coercion. It doesn't, uh, the, uh, an establishment clause case only lies in coercion. If you're not being forced to pray, that's not an establishment clause case. Disregard this case over here that says endorsement is a problem that's hmm. on all fours of, of this very specific kind of fact pattern. So that was, I think that's probably the thing that surprised me the most. Um, Scottsdale was really an eye opener. Um, we had literal op-eds, literally the, the, the mayor and, uh, city councilor, uh, put out a newspaper notice. We are going to discriminate against the Satanists. We're going to tell them, hell no, we're going to send the satanic sideshow elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And we still lost. We still lost. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, it's just shocking. It's truly shocking. You hear about it a little bit when you're law adjacent about just how unjust the system is. And it's real unjust out there. Not just for TST stuff, obviously, but that's, you know, the subject of discussion. Sure. Yeah. And so... For people who are unfamiliar with the Scottsdale case, let me see if I can recap. The Arizona chapter, then chapter, now congregation, was going to hold a, uh, 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 what's it called? A, um, it's a legislative prayer. So, okay. um, I can, I can give it. Yes, I, please. I, I yes, please. Because point. whatever you say, whatever I say will be riddled with plot holes. So definitely tell us what happened. Super, super high level. Here's how it goes. Um, sometimes, in fact, often governments will open a government meeting with a government led prayer. Hmm. And that's a little fishy from an exception clause perspective. It sure sounds like the government is saying we endorse prayer over non-believers. If you want to be a good citizen, you must pray and you must sit here and listen to this prayer that we are going to host. Um, And particularly when it comes to like cities, for example, um, 
that kind of raises people's backs because they're like, I have to either like be out as a non-believer and potentially offend the person who I'm going to be asking something from, um, or I have to override my religious non-beliefs in most cases um, and just go along with this prayer, even though I don't want to, because I want something from this person. I don't want them to be mad at me because I'm not participating in their prayer scheme. Um, the way that the constitution resolves this is they say, okay, you can have these prayers, but they must be non-discriminatory. The ability to pray must be evenly handed, given out to Christians as Buddhists, as Hindi, you name it. Everyone is allowed in or no one is allowed in. That's how this game works. So that being the impetus for all this, uh, Arizona chapter says they were going around, not just to Scottsdale. It's just that Scottsdale was the one that was the issue. Uh, before Scottsdale, they went to Phoenix and Phoenix shut down their prayer scheme to exclude TST. Um, then they go over to Scottsdale and Scottsdale says, uh, um, we're going to let you in. No qualifications, no nothing. Sounds great. You want in, you get in because that's, that's how the law works. That's how you're supposed to do it. Um, a, a shit show happened. 15,000 plus emails crashed city servers entitled No Hail Satan Prayer. Um, the, as I said earlier, uh, a, a four out of seven counselors made some kind of public statement to the effect of, we don't want these people in here. We talked about it. We resolved that we cannot, consistent with the Constitution, exclude them. And then um, about a month, about a month before the invocation, um, we get an email from the functionally, they, they call it a city, city manager, I think, either city manager or city administrator. Basically, it's the mayor, the guy who actually runs the city. Um, the mayor sends to the scheduling person an email that says, you're going to tell them no, and you're going to tell them no, because they don't have any substantial community ties, and we require that. And we always have. And so that was the whole basis of the lawsuit. You allowed us in without question. What do you mean you always required community ties? Seems like that's a, the kind of question you would ask me before you let us in, right? Yeah. And also, how do you know we don't have substantial community ties? You're just telling us that we don't. And so we saw the writing on the wall. What it is, is no matter what it is we come up with, it's not going to be substantial community ties. They're going to redefine substantial community ties to exclude us. And that's what happened in the litigation. At the outset, you needed a member. Well, we had a member. Oh, well, you need two. We have two. Oh, well, you need at least three and a physical location. Okay. And the judge says, well, that's, that's their policy. <laughs> Disregard the, the shifting uh, goalposts here. That's their policy. Hmm. So we lost. Hmm. So here's, here's a question. I'm not entirely sure how to articulate it. But what does Matt think of the future regarding bodily autonomy rituals in relation to trans rights uh, slash access to health care? This kind of goes back to what we were talking about, the two functional wings of TSC. You're in the ministry side of things. I'm in the law side of things. Um, I can tell you all about the, the legal framework. You present me with a ritual. You ask me, you know, what are the legal requirements of a ritual? This is kind of what I'm trying to get to. That's... Totally, totally my field. I, I have thoughts about, you know, short answer. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, for example, want to get top surgery and you want to ritualize the matter. Uh, yeah. I can see many different ways that you could do that. That 
is a little bit more of the artistry side of TST that I just not being a minister, I, I can't really speak to. Uh, but, you know, ritual very traditionally is there to um, acknowledge certain stages in a person's life sometimes. You know, you have birth-related rituals, you have death-related rituals, you have, you know, coming-of-age-related rituals. I absolutely could see rituals being formed of it. Um, I just don't see how it becomes a legal issue until and unless there's some kind of law that is you know, burdening or, you know, some kind of, you're not allowed to do that, or, Mm. you know, maybe you're in the hospital and you're wanting to have your ritual, but like right before the ritual and, or the, the uh, procedure and they're telling, you, no, you know, these are the kinds of areas where I can see, okay, well, these are legal issues now, Mm. but in terms of ritualizing the experience, that's, I mean, so, so far as I'm concerned, I don't think you really need TSTs blessing to to ritualize that or to develop your own ritual or what have you um that that seems like something you would discuss with your minister though Mm, absolutely yeah so if anyone listening to this who is interested in this subject definitely uh get in touch with the various ministers you know and if you want to ritualize um your transition or surgery or anything related to your LGBTQ identity, definitely go to your congregation or minister and ask them about that because that is totally within ministry's purview. Yeah. And I even encourage it. You know, I mean, I personally am not uh, queer of any variety, but um, I absolutely could see coming out of the closet. That's an immense uh, part of someone's life that, you know, you commemorate that with ritual, you make it, you make the, the, uh, stress. And this is really where the, I guess this probably should have been answered on the first question, but this is what the abortion ritual is there for is, you know, there's a lot of societal pressure and a societal stress. And the part of the abortion ritual is there to kind of relieve that and give some sense of comfort in a time when it is not probably, or potentially even, uh, is not a good time. That's why we have rituals. We have grief rituals. We have funerals, all of these things. Um, these are around and, you know, it's not just because of supernatural beliefs. It's, there are well-studied secular benefits to ritual. Um, I think that's a significant value add that TSC gives to the membership. I'm going to probably get the language here wrong. When church militant which is a crazy fucking Catholic, absolutely lunatic, uh, like trad Catholic or media organization. Yeah. Were you all of in, these are correct words. Were you, <laughs> all of these are the correct words. Um, <laughs> were you, I assume you were involved in a statement about their free speech and their religious yeah. freedom. Could you talk some about this? Because I read yeah. it and I and I found out about this because certain TST to detractors were posting this statement everywhere where you know, you were defending the free speech of this unbelievably horrifically toxic organization called Church Militant. And they were like, "See what evil people TST are." And I did not interpret it that way. I saw it as an extraordinary commitment to the 
first to first principles. I saw it as an extraordinary commitment to the foundational principles of enlightenment, to the principles that keep society running. So talk some about that situation. Yeah, I, I'd be more than happy to. I'm I'm actually really excited about that brief. I was very excited that um, Mark Randazza is their lawyer. He texted me and said, hey, I want, it's called an amicus brief. So um, typically the way that lawsuits work is you have plaintiff and defendant, plaintiff is suing defendant uh, because defendant did something that caused some legal harm to plaintiff. And usually it's just between the two of them. But when you go up on appeal, which is to say the trial judge comes out with a decision, then both sides have an opportunity to say, I don't like that decision. I don't like something that happened in the trial process. You have an appeal, which is you go above the trial judge and you have a panel of at least three judges who hear your appeal and they say, essentially, did the judge make the right or wrong call uh, fundamentally? And usually on appeal of cases of significant questions, um, you'll have amicus briefs, the friend of the court briefs, amicus curiae, um, who are kind of just side, side observers. It's, I'm not like personally affected by this, but I have an interest in this litigation. And so that's what an amicus is. And I am advocating for the court to do one thing or another. Maybe I disagree with both of them. In this case, I, I did actually kind of disagree with them because they never, the plaintiffs never really addressed the free exercise implications, what they were talking about. They're so focused on free speech, which again, there's a difference between religious speech and just non-religious speech, like secular speech. Um, so they're, you know, pursuing this whole secular argument. And I'm like, well, um, you're kind of missing a pretty big crux here. This isn't just a business organization that was silenced. You have a religious organization that was and, silenced. And in what way were they silenced? Yeah. So sorry. Um, the, the fact pattern was this. The United States Conference of Bishops were having their Bishop Con uh, in Baltimore, <laughs> whatever it is. Bishop Con. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> The, it's the, they, where they, they cosplay. There. They cosplay yeah. as bishops. Yeah, yeah. I, I or so I assume. I, I've never really been Catholic. So, uh, <laughs> at any rate, so they're um, doing their their bishop thing, administering the Catholic Church, um, and Church Militant is a bunch of Catholics, but they're dissents, uh, dissenters in the Catholic Church, specifically, or at least specifically at this point, uh, surrounding the child abuse scandals are saying y'all aren't doing enough to address, you know, the whole raping of kids business. And so Baltimore, if, if I remember correctly, yeah. So where they wanted to have their event was at a Baltimore owned venue, city of Baltimore owns a, a, it's a pavilion. And so they wanted to have, you know, speakers come in and talk about basically this is what's going on. We want to spread awareness. And there was also going to be religious stuff happening there. They're going to be praying the rosary, whatever that means. And there's going to be, you know, it's a, it's a Catholic event It's a uniquely Catholic event. It's also talking about church governance, which is why it's a free exercise problem. And so city of Baltimore finds out about this and they tell their management company to exclude church militant. They say, we don't like what they have to say. So, uh, deplatform them basically. And they were, everything was going fine up until the city said, cancel them. And the stated reason for why they said cancel them is we don't like what they have to say. That's a huge free access, uh, free speech issue, huge censorship yeah. issue. 
and, so, and the difference here between, say, Twitter saying we don't like what so-and-so says or they're violating our terms of service, therefore we're deplatforming them versus the government doing it. Yeah. There's obviously gargantuan Twitter being a private organization, the government being the government, and that is what makes this a legal issue, is that well, it was in a government pavilion, right? That's what makes it a free speech issue. Right, 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 right. Um, okay. You know, private companies can cause private harms. Yes. Um, and so, for example, um, Arkansas has a you cannot religiously discriminate mm. uh, law. Like at all, nobody can religiously discriminate. Lots of places have, you know, hotels can't religiously discriminate or uh, they call it places of public accommodation can't religiously discriminate. But Arkansas just has like a carte blanche. Nobody can religiously discriminate. Um, so there are some times when stuff like that can come up. Like if you're censoring religious speech, for example, um, mm -hmm. in this particular case, it's actual because it's the government doing it. That's that makes the most complete important. sense. Yes. Um, but, you know, the, the people are in control of the laws. If, you know, there's enough political pressure, I could see there being some regulation out there that says Twitter can't discriminate along these lines. I can right. absolutely see that happening. For now, that's not the case, though. Um, so that's what happened in, in Baltimore. And the judge rightly found, the trial judge rightly found, this is totally viewpoint discrimination. You can't do that. And so you're, you're liable. So they... They appeal on that ground. We intervened as amicus because they appeal just the free speech side of things, not the religious expression side of things. And as part of every amicus brief, you have to start out with your statement of interest. This is who we are, and this is why we care about this lawsuit. This is why court you should be hearing from us. And the crux of TST's statement of interest is this could have just as easily been us. Yes. What if instead of the United States Catholic bishops being offended. And so they call their friends at city hall to go kick out the church militants. The exact same fact pattern happens. They say, we don't like those Satan's kick them out. Yep. Exactly. That's just as easily us. It's just as easily anyone in a minority viewpoint, you know, that's, that's an issue. So, uh, that's why we intervened. And I know, and my audience is probably sick of me saying this, but part of the reason why, in my opinion, minority rights have been successful in the United States is because of religion of, is because of freedom of speech. Yeah, that is absolutely. that is why freedom of speech exists to protect the minority. And so I have a theory that part of the reason why the terms free speech have become a right wing catchphrase and the left has just kind of given it to them. And so, you know, you talk to, you know, lefty online socialists and you and, and you say the word free speech and they all cringe. Well, I think the reason they cringe is because we've, you know, probably the first place where we encountered the phrase free speech was from 4chan trolls on uh, online and 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 there's like that immediate distaste and so we just we just let go of the word and we just let go of the idea but the thing that i always want to bring it back to is if if the precedent is set of deplatforming and silencing people if that precedent is set who do you think will be the 
first people to be victimized by that. It it will be us. It will be queer people. It will be Satanists. It will be the religious minorities. It will be the the weird freaks on the fringes of society who freak out the mainstream. That is that is what will happen if we set that precedent. If we call for the silencing in in the public square of people we don't like, well, guess who will be the first ones that that turns back on? It's going to be us. And so the principle is what matters here because the principle is what protects all of us. Yeah, well, that's you're spot on. And I go one step further and point out that we have and. You know, you you say this or you you state this, but this is a very artful turn of phrase. We have free speech rights, not for the freedom or not for the speech that we agree with. We have it for the speech that we hate. Exactly. That's why we have free speech. It and, it doesn't you know, do any good if it's just for the speech we're comfortable with. There's there's no yeah. use there. Yeah. So you know that's I mean so there the the primary thing the the crux of why we intervened is it could have just as easily been us. Uh, part of it also is a bit of a longer term um, strategy that I have at play here. I'd like to start doing more amicus briefs because what I want is for the first time that we have a case in front of a judge as plaintiff, I want them to have heard of who we are mm. and I want them to see that we are friends of the court. I want mm. them to see that we know what the law is. We're doing this, you know, we're uh, applying it properly, all that business so that when we actually do have a need from say the fourth circuit in this particular case, they will have seen our work in the past. They will have heard of us and they will have known, aha, these aren't just a bunch of jokesters. They, they know what the first amendment's about. And so that's, that's important that there's a reason why, you know, you go to any Supreme court docket, you see 50 different damn uh, amicus filings mm. for one or both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they want their name in front of that Supreme Court so that when they need something for the Supreme Court, they're looked upon favorably. They're familiar. Hmm. So yeah. that was another part of why we, we intervened. Yeah, it's fascinating. So I, I wanted to end on that note, that broader principle of free speech and freedom of religion. So uh, before we end, what are your cats' names? You've, you, two cats have been coming in and out. <laughs> uh, so uh, we, have, we have the two cats, the one... Currently hanging out with me is Princess. Princess. Uh, this one. Um, and then our other cat is usually just cat. We we <laughs> call him cat. Uh, sometimes it, it's a cat of many names. Sometimes it's Satan cat. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's snow cat because we live in Minnesota. Um, Are you talking about Satan? Yeah, we're talking about Satan cat. Oh, yes. So no, he's just Satan. Oh, is he? And then the other Sorry. one is mini Satan. And the other one is also sometimes mini Satan. This one. one Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Beautiful. All right. Well, I think that is it for this show. Thank you, Matt, so much for joining me. And you are welcome back anytime. Thank you for having me. I'd be happy to come back. The theme song is Wild by 11D7. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan. Hail Satan. And thanks for listening. <laughs>